If you want 2024 to be your best running year, it is essential you have a customized training plan tailored to your race schedule and ability level. That's why I'm pumped to have Motive sponsoring the podcast. You can use the app for free, but if you want two months of premium access, you can use code SMARTER2. Sign up at mymotive.com. The link will be in the show notes. On today's episode, survive and thrive as a master's runner with Matt Walsh. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, and smarter runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am the guy to reach out to when you've finally decided enough is enough with your persistent running injuries. I'm a physiotherapist, the owner of the Breakthrough Running Clinic, and your podcast host. I'm excited to bring you today's lesson and to add to your ever-growing running knowledge. Let's work together to overcome your running injuries, getting you to that starting line and finishing strong. So let's take it away. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode. The Run Smarter Online course is now live as of today, and I it struck me. Um, I hadn't really been promoting it as well on the podcast purely because I was invested on social media posts and keeping people informed and up to date of what the course was doing. And I had pre-recorded a lot of podcast episodes and had them scheduled to go out um, in the coming weeks. And so when the course launched and the early bird special discount when the registration had closed, I'm like, I haven't really prepared the listeners enough. So um, it is live today. The early bird special registration has closed, but for you listeners, I wanted to try and uh, allow the same amount of value. So if you want to sign up for the course, I have a promo code just for you. And while you register, it will ask you to submit the promo code the code will be podcast. So if you enter podcast, you get the same early bird special that the others have had. And I will, li- I'll give it about a week for that promo code to be valid. And so t- now is the 1st of June. So we'll out to the 7th or 8th of June. And yeah, if you want to sign up, I'll have the landing page link in our show notes and yeah, hopefully you enjoy. If you are listening to this somewhere in the future. Um, the full price is $99. That is still around about 10 times the value you're going to receive based on this course. I wanted to leave the value of the course equivalent to about one physio consult, the price of one physio consult, just because I know that this course, the value that it delivers and the knowledge that you'll gain is easily 10 times the amount of value than just one standard physio consult. So you're still getting a lot of value and you're getting a really good investment if you um, pay for that course. Today we have Matt Walsh and he, uh, I reached out to him to discuss becoming or all things around a master's runner. I heard him as a guest on another podcast, thought he'd be great for this sort of topic. I want to say first thanks to those who have um, mentioned or asked that I ask Matt these questions. Um, first, Matt Plenty wants to ask what are some common injuries when it comes to the Masters Runner and what are the most or beneficial passive treatments, you could say, for stretching foam roller, which is the best option for muscle recovery. Caleb McInnes wants to talk about calf specifically, the loss of mass, increased risk of injury, and really just dive into that topic when it comes to the overall performance of a runner once they get above 35 years old. On Instagram, Erin said that uh, she asked a question, should running frequency and or distance change as a runner gets older? And is there a better way to plan their yearly race calendars for performance and injury risk? Matt G asks, what are some of the top three prehab activities for an aging runner heading into 40? And should we, what should we do to remain pain-free? I didn't do a shout out to you individually throughout the interview. I thought I'd just give you a shout out now and try and work these questions into the interview as much as I can, as best as I can. That way the interview is a bit more free flowing. I'd also recommend if you haven't already, go back and listen to 
Kevin Mag's episode when we're debunking knee osteoarthritis for a runner. I think it ties in really well with this episode. And a lot of people, as they get older, think that running is bad for their knees and they're thinking that they're an increased risk of developing osteoarthritis if they are a runner. So have a listen to that episode and then have a listen to this one. It's going to uh, really tie in and cover a lot of loose ends. In this episode, we'll cover all of those questions that I've just mentioned. And I want to say a big thanks for you all for submitting your questions. And we'll take, we'll jump straight into this interview with Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh, thanks for coming on. I know this, uh, the topic of the discussion today is going to be survive and thrive for a master's runner, which is a really interesting topic. I'm learning while well, I'm excited to learn uh, what you have to say. I uh, want to start by saying thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very um, prevalent population, especially from the listeners and from my Facebook group. A lot of the people that are on there are kind of in this category. And when you see marathon runners and you see the big events, it's um, pretty much the, the vast majority of the population. So um, excited to dive in. I, I think what we might start off with is... Um, what at what stage at what age should we start paying attention to these like physiological changes that go on in the body as we age and when should we start uh kind of putting in the forefront of our mind to implement some countermeasures yeah that's a, that's a good good place to start isn't it sort of determining who are we actually talking about and I, and i can probably answer it two ways for you the sort of the technical way of answering it is to say when the physiology really starts to take a bit of a deflection is really once we're sort of in that sort of 35 to 40 year old category. It's a little little younger for ladies than it is for men. You know, they get bony changes a little earlier, for example. Um, but they both start getting the sort of the hit on sarcopenia and a little bit of bone resorption stuff kicking in in that sort of last component of our third decade. So I think if you want to call a masters or a you know an aging athlete, if there's such a such a term that anybody wants to be labelled as. Um, then it's probably in mid-30s and on. The, the, the other side of it that I think I have to sort of throw in early, because I was thinking about this, you know, preparing for what we're going to chat about today, is that in the same way as I talk to a, a 35 or a 40-year-old runner about, you know what, I'm going to talk to you about what I want you to do when you're 50 and 60. Really, we should be having a conversation with our 20 and 30-year-old runners of, you know, I want you to be prepared for the fact that if you really love this running stuff, then you've got to make really smart decisions now because things such as, particularly when it comes to kind of recurrent trauma, like if you have a couple of injuries, for example, intraarticular injuries in the knee, then you're not going to be a big mileage runner in your 60s and 70s. It doesn't mean you don't run, but, but the stats aren't going to look good if you have an internal derangement in the knee. So there's always that kind of prevention side of it that I think as physios we've got to we've got to kind of keep our smart hats on and be able to say to people you may not be in this category yet but boy you better be thinking about it so yeah and I think it's when you're talking about in the earlier years uh knowledge is the the main source it's like the once you know what the effects are going to be like in 10 15 20 years um then you can start do like having in the the back of your mind, okay, these are the changes going to happen. These are the countermeasures I need to do. Um, yeah. But education is number one. And I like how you say that's, we need to start making smart decisions because that's the, the philosophy around this podcast. And yeah, when, when we're talking about these changes, you did mention earlier in the female population, these bony changes, what are the mm -hmm. other main kind of physiological changes that you see as we get onto the other side of that 35, 40 years old? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big overarching thing is what every single generic runner will tell you is the truth, is that, is that there's, a, there's a loss of everything. I mean, there's a sort of steady decline in, in most physiological parameters. There's vascular stiffness, there's you know, glucose tolerance changes, insulin sensitivity changes, renal function drops, uh, your max heart rate drops, um, you've got to kind of increase your stroke volume to get the cardiac output back up. So your VO2 max is going to drop, uh, your fat mass goes up. Like all those physiological changes are, are happening to small degrees. I think that um, we're starting to get onto the statistical end of being able to look at this healthier 
older population that we didn't really have 20 years ago. So, you know, 60 is the new 50 or whatever the phrase is, meaning that the, the scale has sort of slid to the right a little bit better of, of, of what we think of as a younger athlete. And so I think even though we, we can kind of see the, the physiological markers, we haven't seen enough longitudinal studies of really healthy people who have maintained a smart, healthy approach through their third and fourth and fifth decades. The numbers aren't big enough, but we've certainly seen some very kind of exciting outliers, which you know, gives you hope if, if you're thinking about running in your 60s, 70s and 80s, um, that you should be able to do it quite well because there are good examples of people who have done it well. And it seems to be the logical stuff that as you get stiffer, you know, in every system in your body that's getting stiffer, you know, if you just took the tendon, for example, that you basically have to stay on top of that with the appropriate amount of strength and the appropriate amount of ballistic type springy work that keeps that elastic recoil on a tendon, for example. So I think we're going to see that even though these physiological changes have been traditionally looked at as happening in the 30s, maybe that some of that population that we're looking at is not quite as active as, as maybe this sort of current decade are um, so it, it's interesting to me to sort of see that i think the numbers will again slide a little bit to the right and maybe mid-30s we'll you know we'll have this podcast in 10 years time we'll be saying mid-40s yeah for sure if we're if we can sidetrack a little bit and talk about the bony changes that you're mentioning before you did uh talk about it's like a gradual loss like uh if you build a big base then as we start to progress in age, the, the loss becomes just gradual as the years go on. But if you have a bigger base to start with, then you have more to chip away at as the age advances. Um, if we're just sidetracking, talking about the bony stress and bony changes, what ways can we um, build a bigger base in our 20s and 30s? Yeah, so I think two ways of tackling that. One is to say, how do you... How do you A, build a bigger base? That's just a, that's a sort of a mileage and a sensible progression um, question, as well as a capacity question, which is sort of the, you know, the key word of this decade. Um, you've definitely got to build, you've got to build tissue capacity, A. You've got to build volume in your training, B. And then you've also got to, one of the things that we're knowing recently that's quite protective to bone is you've actually got to have some impact. So we've got to be careful about thinking that because we're heading towards this era of bone loss that we need to protect the bone we need to soften our strikes we need to soften our shoes we need to only go to soft surfaces for example when really people who play cutting sports for example in their 30s and 40s have better bone health than others you know people who actually have some quick loading on the bone do better and their bone health is better so so I think protection can come in a variety of ways, if this answers your question. It can come with building a sensible, strong mileage base, or if you still call mileage base in kilometres. Um, it can come from obviously having tissue capacity, so that's strength. And it can come from choosing appropriate surfaces, loading and technique that actually stimulates normal you know, bony adaptation rather than sort of getting into a protective shell. And, and that's not going into the whole, you know, what do you do with nutrition and what do you do to look after all the other factors, immunological factors that are going to look after bone health. That's a whole other sort of bigger health question, I guess. Yeah, and is um, a, a bigger question and it's worth looking for the answers because that's you can do some really good things and build up that mileage and build up that base, but if you're not... Um, fueling your body with the necessary components for bone health, then um, it, you're just not balancing out the equation. And yeah, you, did, okay. you did mention that adaptation uh, part of it and how the bone seems to um, build up a good density if you do subject it to shock and mm -hmm. this sort of attenuation and what I was learning when I was graduating from physio is, you know, a swimmer, if you just do a whole bunch of swimming, you're not going to get strong bones because you're not impacting the ground. But I tended to think that running was quite good for bone health because you're impacting the ground um, at a constant rate. And so you're sending that shock through the bones. But I think even these days in the last couple of years, I don't think that is even enough because people are 
um, trying to run soft and they've got yeah, uh, yeah. these shoes, they're increasing their cadence, their four foot strike. And it's kind of a really <laughs> soft kind of impact where you're actually yeah. wanting a bit more bang for your buck. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a healthy balance between those. I mean, having a little bit of a, a midfoot forefoot adaptation or the ability to sort of switch gears between a heel strike and a midfoot strike is always going to be healthy because it's going to get you to use your gastroc soleus as well as using some of the bony architecture. So both of those are good. You just don't want to live in one camp. <clears throat> and I think you're right, obviously, that the impact is a good thing. Now, the statistics on, on runners who have run through their third to fifth decade you know, and their likelihood of having a joint replacement is much lower than, than somebody who doesn't. So there's sort of, let's be transparent about the old myth of, you know, if you run, you're going to wear your joints out is, is completely ludicrous. Um, now, if you're, you've already got three meniscectomies and you run lots of mileage, yes, you're going to wear your joint out. So, so there's, still, there's still some truth to some small subcategories in that. But I think the other side of this, um, Brody, is that, um, is that running variability is really important. We're sort of seeing how important variability is in just, just an overall broad um, epidemiological side of things that if you play multiple sports, you know, you're going to be healthier as a, as a single sport athlete, as an adult, for example, or kids who played multiple sports. And I think that we haven't really dug into the, the same thing with running, that if all you do is one particular type of running and that's all you do, then there's no variability in that. And, and that's going to have a deleterious effect just as much, even though running is good for you and so forth. You're running with the same motor pattern all the time. You're running with the same loading strategy. You're running with the same heel strike. Maybe you're even running on a very similar surface at a similar pace. And it's, it's that sort of lack of variability that I'm constantly trying to get behind the, the sort of the whys and the what fors with masters runners is to say to them, you've got to be careful about settling into this kind of, I feel safe in this particular way of training and running and doing things. Because if there's an overarching theme to trying to keep these masters athletes healthy, it's, it's to shock them into staying young, you know, and that shock can come in a variety of forms. And I'm not saying, you know, you, you bring them into some sort of loading strategy that they're not prepared for. It's always going to be a progressive loading, but shock seems to be the sort of the, the recurrent theme in, if you want to call it the anti-aging or the decelerating the aging process whether that's shock from giving somebody heat stress, meaning, you know, put them in a hot sauna or give them high intensity interval training or get them to do you know, cold showers and practice their breathing. Like all these things that basically throw you into a sort of a, a moderate distress are really good for your, for your metabolism and really good for your body. Um, you know, and it promotes all sorts of sort of fun stuff in the NAD system and the sirtuins and so forth that allows you to basically those sort of shock proteins essentially come out and say, you know, you're kind of young. And so, so that's another way to think about this is that the training can't become so linear and so narrow that that's all they're good at because then it only takes one step off the, off the trail, so to speak, and they're done. Um, they're actually just as fragile as everybody else. So, so variability in the training is, is kind of another really important theme I think we've got to get across to our runners. Would you be able to throw some examples at us of how a master runner can um, like different examples of variability that you might be satisfied with over a given uh, like couple of weeks or a month? Yeah, absolutely. So, so if we have sort of, let, let's imagine we have sort of the dream, the dream masters runner who does it all right. And, and this might take us a week to un, unravel all the levels of what, you know, making it right actually is built up of. But if we just start with just their running training, then let's imagine they're a distance runner and they like to run, let's say, 50 miles a week. So what's that, about 80, 90 K, something like that. And, um, and they do that over five to seven days a week. So they might have some rest. That would be, that would be one component in it. That rest may still have cross-training in it. That cross-training will probably have some sort of lateral movement in it. So they might actually... in where I live in Portland, Oregon, they, they might play a little pickup um, basketball, a little bit of hoops. Um, they might play a sport like a little bit of tennis where they have some lateral motion. So they're still, they're still able to use their legs and 
be able to work on them. They might do some, some cycling and maybe they get out on a mountain bike so they've got a little bit of impact and variability and proprioceptor training there. So one of their days has something that's quite different to it. When it comes to their running, I think the big thing that I like to throw in there is that most easy runs or moderate runs will have strides at the end of the run. So you'll always finish the run or at least have them interspersed in the run somewhere that they feel is appropriate as far as their training is going at that moment. But they're above the race, above their training tempo. So they might do five to eight 150s, you know, sort of an upbeat stride where they open up their hips, they actually get up onto their midfoot, forefoot, they use their, their tendons in a, in a different way than they've been doing throughout the rest of the run. Um, you know, it takes away a little bit of the pelvic drop and gets them to use their hip opens, for example, in a better fashion. So I would throw in strides. Uh, they would lift and they would lift twice a week. Um, and that lifting doesn't have to be hugely complicated, but it has to be intense enough that they really do fully fatigue. So we're going to kind of head them down the path of the sort of classic strength gaining process. So they're going to have somewhere between five to eight reps in a set once they're skillful at it. And they might do two to four sets in that. And they might get about 100, 150 reps on a particular discipline or a muscle group in a given week. Um, so they've got a couple of strengthening days. They've got some strides. They've got some longer runs. They've got a little bit of fartlek running in there. Uh, and they've got a variability in their surface. So the surface might be that they have three out of those five runs are on the trail, one runs on the road, and one runs on a track. So then the last thing that I would put in the variability, sort of generically speaking, because every case is going to be different, of course, based on the history, um, is that I would get them to change shoes. So they might have, in the best of worlds, they might have two or three different types of pairs of shoes that they're constantly rotating through the week. Um, and that doesn't always have to be that this is my long distance shoe and this is my shorter distance shoe. They may actually mix those up as well. But to have a variability in the, in the interface between their foot and the surface that they're on is healthy. You know, it just it changes their stride, it changes their proprioception slightly, it changes their recoil off the, off the surface. So all of those things are going to um, mess with their motor control a little bit, but also ch challenge their tissues in a healthy way. So I think those would be the, the things that are you know, sort of off the cuff as far as variability goes that I would generally put in. Yeah, I think the changes in speed people can do quite frequently. Um, the When you mentioned the trails and the change in surface, if you are running... You aren't a template, so your training shouldn't be either. The Motive app takes training plans written by the best coaches in the world, then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. It's such a good idea, which is why it is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world and has thousands of age group athletes signing up every month with a near-perfect 4.9 star rating. It will even plan triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, and other events if you're branching away from running races. You can use the app for free for as long as you want, with the premium access being just $19.99 per month. But if you use code SMARTER2, you can get two months of full premium access. Sign up through their website, mymotive.com, and make 2024 your best year yet. Running trails that can get a bit of lateral movement in there as well, so you're not just on that repetitive, um, you know, that, that same form every single time. And if you're changing directions from time to time, that helps keep the body guessing. Um, if they're, like, I think with the speed work, they can work it in, like, after any run but if someone needs to change their surface um would you recommend that on a weekly basis as well how frequently are we doing that we're talking about a speed workout or are we talking about strides uh if we're wanting to change surface like if we're wanting to go from say pavement to um trails uh-huh so i, I mean I, most of my master's runners and maybe this is just because of the the sort of person who persists with their running in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And I'm not stopping at the 60s. You know, I've got an 80-year-old at the moment. Um, most of those runners prefer to run on the trails. Um, so I never really have to convince many of them to get onto the trails. Um, they like it. It shortens their stride slightly. It gives them some variability. It takes away some of the monotony. Um, they see it as healthy for their, for their sort of their proprioception. Um, the harder time that I have with people is to say, you know, it's okay. In fact, sometimes it's a good thing to run on a surface that's, a, that's sort of infinitely more trustworthy and you can actually confidently open up your stride. So that might be getting them onto the road or uh, a pavement system or maybe a, a sort of a broader, flatter, harder trail. 
Uh, and they would do that once to twice a week if they were doing five to six runs in a week. So that's sort of, you know, 30% of their runs might be done there. And, yeah, and that's awesome. again, it's also a little bit dependent upon, you know, I have a lot of folks who, if you can get up early in the morning and you can have the road to yourself, it's, it's a healthy, happy place to be. But if you can't do that and, you know, you're living in the urban life, you may want to get out of the trails because it's the only place you're safe to actually get your run. Um, you don't want to be dodging traffic all day um, and you don't want to be on a cambered road always running against the traffic, for example, early in the morning, you know, against the headlights. So I think that you've got to kind of see where they're at. And then the, and then the last side of that, of course, would be that if they, um, you know, if all their races are going to be on the road, well, they better be training on the road. You, know, you need to know that you're actually training the surface that you're going to be racing in. And I've had a few episodes, and I'm sure you have as well, clinically, where you know, they're so worried about impact loading and you know, runners have fear avoidance just in the same way that our chronic spinal pain patients do that have been based on the history and they've, been, they've misinterpreted the history as being that impact was the thing that, that traumatised me and gave me this injury when really it was probably just overtraining often the time. Um, but they've got into this mindset where they can't get on the road. They're not allowed to get on the road because they're worried it's going to break their joints down. And, and then they go out and race on the road. And so they get injured. And then it fulfills the, the prophecy that running on the road was a bad problem. And so they, they go back to the trails again and sort of hide in the forest and, uh, and then worry about the next 5K that they're going to do or 10K that they're going to do on the road. Um, so somewhere in the middle there, you've, got to, um, you've really got to get behind Masters Athletes' belief systems um, because they're stubborn. <laughs> you know, they are, they've been running a long time. Um, they're sort of, they're comfortable in what they've been doing a lot of the time. You know, they've made their own grooves. They've worked out their own way of doing things. And, and I find that one of the biggest challenges, I mean, runners are a hard bunch to work with because they just want to bloody run. Um, and then you add on top of that, that you've got a stubborn runner who's been running for 30 or 40 years in this particular way. You've really got to get into what's driving them, what's motivating them and what maybe in that belief system is not helping them moment how you can kind of access that with, with some some pretty positive conversations and some pretty powerful impact on their on their problems so that they trust you yeah so. you're touching on some really good points it's a really nice topic that we're we're discussing um and for those who are listening so what matt's mainly discussing is you want you want to become more resilient you want more tools in your tool belt to uh in order for to keep the body guessing and you become more resilient that way if you just keep the body guessing and you don't overdo things so that the you're subjected to like overuse injuries what you're doing is um very slowly implementing different methods in your training and that way the body will adapt to that and yeah become more resilient and what we're explaining is if a runner if a master's runner has been doing the same thing over and over for years and years and years that's what the body has adapted to and it's not going to like any sudden change, like any change in sudden change in terrain or shoes or, and mm -hmm. the actual runner itself can be quite worried and have the fear if they were to drastically change. And so they stick to what they know. And it's kind of this, um, their confirmation just keeps building on that belief that they can't change any of their variables because then they get injured. But if you um, reverse engineer that a little bit and, force yourself to make those adjustments little by little by little, then you become a, a bigger, you have a bigger buffer for different variability and you have that you're building more and more resilience. Anything you want to touch on with that, Matt, before we move on? Yeah, I, think, I mean, resilience is a great word. One of the, one of the intake questions that I actually ask my, my patients is, you know, do you feel resilient as a runner? And actually get them to rate it from sort of one to 10. And then if they, if, they ever, if they ever score low on that, if they ever sort of show me a score that's basically less than about six or seven, quite frankly, I say, well, what would take it up to 10? You know, what is the thing that would make you feel bomb-proof? You know, what is it? And is it eradicating all your past injuries? Or is it eradicating you know, these components of your training? Or is it building better confidence in this particular area? Like, I, I've, had a, I've had an influx in the last two months of um, trail runners with recurrent ankle sprains. And the number one thing that they say to me, you know, sort of communicating online, for, for example, for, for starts, is, is I've lost confidence. 
I've lost confidence in my movement. And so that's a, that's a powerful thing to get in the way of you feeling resilient. You know, if you, if you have no confidence that your foot's going to actually hold up when you're running downhill and you're fatigued, that's a hard place to run. So you've really got to get behind what you can do to boost in their confidence. What's it going to take to get you to a place where you trust that foot so well that, you know, you can, you can hit any rock sideways, fully fatigued and, you, and your tissue can take it and you can take it. And even if it does let you down a little bit, you know that it's going to bounce right back. So it's a, it's a good game to have to play with people. I, um, I, I've, I've often thought about, uh, this is a really old concept um, that I had talked about with a bunch of masters runners when I was actually living in Canada almost 20 plus years ago. In the middle of the night on this, on this long race that we were doing between um, Jasper and Banff, which is just this beautiful part of the Canadian Rockies, um, this guy's talking to me about how when he was a kid, he would train and he said, you know, I could do any bloody training when I was a kid. And as I've got older, you know, my body is fussier and fussier about the sort of training and the sort of food and the sort of recovery. And, and I said, well, you're an old runner. You're like a leaky bucket. And, uh, and those leaks in the bucket are your old injuries. And if they never got patched up completely properly, then they've got a little leak in them. You've got to kind of keep topping things up with, with a whole batch of stuff in there. You've got to keep filling it up and filling it up. And because of the leaks, you have less resilience when the, when the volume in that bucket is high, when the training is high and the intensity is high. And so you're fearful of that. You don't go into that training zone. So now you atrophy things and things get weaker and it sort of becomes this recurrent cycle. And it really kind of resonated with me for years, this idea that, you know, as we get on a bit, we have to be smarter. We have to be wiser. We have to act our age. <laughs> um, and there's a phrase that I've given to so many runners now, like, like be wise. Look at look how old you are. Start being wise. Like, act your age, um, not your shoe size. And, and the, part of what they come back with is saying, you know, you're right. I actually have to do the work now to get my confidence back up and to keep it up there long enough that now it doesn't become a problem. I can put it in, as my, my Irish buddy says to me, put it in your rear mirror you know, to be able to really get away from that thing, not have it tagged onto you forever. So, yeah, good. A nice, um, a nice segue into that leaky bucket would be to discuss any common injuries for, for males and females as they get older. Um, mm. is, is there any common ones that come to mind? Yeah, it comes to mind and, and they're in the stats. You know, the, the, the most common injury for the, for the, the Masters athlete, when we're, particularly when we're getting up 40 plus, is going to be the Achilles tendon. So that's sort of number one on the list. Uh, and then if you look at the, the ladies who are running, um, it moves up a little bit more to the tendinopathic work around the lateral hip. Um, so the, the gluteal tendinopathies uh, have a slightly higher incidence, still behind the Achilles tendon, but higher. Uh, than they are in the men. And, um, and then plantar fascia hits both groups fairly equally. Um, it tends to be posterior chain, which is kind of interesting to me, that there's also sort of third or fourth on the list is uh, hamstring, hamstring related problems. And then there's, and then there's the intra-articular side of the knee. Um, so I think if you're looking at, you know, the number one thing that you've really got to kind of get on top of as a, as a, a master's athlete, it's probably the foot ankle. Um, you've got to get on top of the declining flexibility and, uh, and the change in form that comes with running a little slower and having a little less gas in the tank. Um, the, the changes in your biomechanics are not helping the fact that you're now starting to move this ankle with, with less power and, and, and you've got a stiffer tissue. So the tendon has become stiffer and you change the mechanics in a way that you're not using the ankle fully because you're not extending your hip and you're not, you've changed the, you've changed the cadence pattern. People have a higher cadence when they get a little older. So there's all those things sort of lead into the weak Achilles. Um, so getting strong in the Achilles is, is a big powerful theme in most of my master's runners. It's like wake your feet up and start to use them properly and get them strong enough, essentially get, get a little bit of spring back into them. Okay. So what you're describing is the Achilles tendon itself is getting stiffer, which means it's not being able to uh, produce as much power. It doesn't have that component to produce the same amount of power. And therefore we increase our cadence and kind of um, 
take shorter strides um, to yep. compensate for that? Yep, with a little less, little less of a moment arm at the knee, and you still get a lot of vertical ground reaction force because of it. Um, and your quad is also a little bit weaker. So you've got some sarcopenia going on at the same time. So essentially, you end up loading the bony system at the knee. You shift a little bit more. If you were a midfoot, forefoot striker, you're going to shift back towards midfoot, rear foot striking. So you're going to be kind of loading the ankle a little bit more. So the bony system ends up taking a wee bit more. And as a result of that, you're in this vicious cycle now, the Achilles tendon not only being having less capacity to it, but also being used less. Um, you put yeah. all those things together and so now it's more prone because it's lowered its capacity and yet you're still running the same mileage. In fact, invariably, a lot of the masters runners pick up their mileage. They, they, they sort of feel comfort in the longer, slower miles. Yeah, it's such a good point to make that not only is the Achilles itself changing its function and not allowing for more force, but those changes in running, if you like reduce your stride length so you're not pushing off, you're not using that Achilles as much as it used to, and over 10 plus years, as you slowly start to evolve and morph your running to allow for that lack of um, spring that your Achilles once had, you could just imagine that the Achilles um, tolerance is getting lower and lower and lower yeah. as yeah. you get older and older with keeping up with that mileage. So it makes complete sense while the 40 plus, the runners at 40 plus years of age are going to start encountering some issues with the Achilles as the, the mileage still remains the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm, you know, I've got to be transparent about this. I'm not a researcher. And so I often throw out questions that maybe have been answered in the research and I haven't found them. Um, or maybe they're too complex to answer in the research at this stage and they're just going to take a little bit of while, but I would love to see somewhere the, the incidence of Achilles tendons in masters runners and then go back 12 to 18 months, maybe even two to three years and have a look at the point where they dropped off activities that they would have typically done that would have maintained the health or the strength of that Achilles tendon. And so invariably, you know, like a lot of our athletes, they think that it's the thing that happened to them a week ago. But really what it was, was it was the change in their, in their movement pattern and their strengthening and their, variability in their loading that they didn't do six months or a year ago that weakened them so dramatically that now they were just they were running on a knife edge waiting for a problem to happen um and you know many runners are sort of terrified that as soon as they feel pain in their achilles tendon it's like the boogeyman because they've heard of their buddies or their, their friends or their partners who who had the ruptured achilles you know, when did they rupture the achilles not normally when they were running on a trail Normally, it's they went out and played a game of tennis um, or, you know, they, they stepped off the curve awkwardly or something like this. And they had a rapid loading thing that, that normally they would have taken just fine with because they would have had rapid loading in their daily routine uh, and, they, and they've stopped it. So my, my thing is you've got to turn back the clock and you've got to start with the basics. So you've got to get them be really good at, uh, at isometrics, at getting their car phrases going and spending a lot of time, particularly for runners. And I know you've, you've probably talked about this with other speakers and also, you know, just your own work, Brody, that the soleus is certainly going to be a really powerful player in this. And we've got to do our sort of bend knee car phrase work and our isometrics. And then once we get good at those and we've got higher loads and we can put something above our, above our body weight, then we've got to be able to move into the more, the more ballistic and plyometric springy type activities rather than picking up the latest magazine of runner's world and, and seeing that somebody's doing plyometrics to get a strong Achilles and jumping into that and, you know, turning it into a disaster. Yeah. You're doing a great job of um, answering the next questions that I have on my, my piece of paper. <laughs> um, because what the question I've written down is like, what do we need to consider in our training if we want to preserve our performance and I guess decrease our likelihood of injury. And if we go back to that, ideal run that we talked about before that's lifting twice a week and doing different speed works and strides and lateral movements and changing shoes and surface and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is the complete runner that we do need to implement, but if we want to get a little bit more specific and yeah. say, talk about uh, performance per se, um, mm -hmm. is there anything that we need to consider 
I do know that like if we want to, we can't just jump into plyometrics, like someone really needs to be strong in order to start implementing some plyometrics. But um, is there anything else that we need to implement to preserve our performance? Yeah. So let's go back to a kind of a fundamental philosophy first, um, just so that we're not getting too cute and, uh, and, and our listeners kind of go, but hang on a second, there's some basics missing here. So I, I, I use another little analogy that I, that I call the three-legged stool, which is really just basic musculoskeletal balance. And that is that you have, if you want to put load on a tissue, you want to put load or training load in a runner, then you've got to have a balanced approach to strength, mobility, and skill. Those are the three legs of the stool, so to speak. Now, they don't have to literally be equal amounts given to them in a week, but there shouldn't be glaring deficits in any one of those. So we've talked a lot about strength, um, but we should also acknowledge that mobility is still a component of this. Now, it doesn't just mean passive mobility, it means dynamic mobility as well. And, and it's the sort of the partnership of strength and mobility that allows you to have, obviously, healthy ranges of motion. And so you're not running into the barrier of you know, a dorsiflexed ankle that is grossly restricted relative to one side and that is loading the Achilles tendon early or is loading the plantar fascia as a secondary compensator. And then on top of that, it's no good just having strength and just being mobile because to be a good runner, you've got to be skillful. So, you know, many runners simply improve the skill of running by running, but sometimes you need to improve the skill, especially if you're going to go through a change in mobility or a change in strength, or you're going to change your approach to the sort of training you're looking at, you're going to ask for more. You may have to do skillful drills. You may have to do running drills. You may have to work on the sort of the fundamental stability and precision that's required to then when you put load on that tissue to get a really effective expression of that load into your running form so that you're running more efficiently. Um, so that's sort of you know, my, my, my basics of when I'm just evaluating somebody, obviously I'm going to be looking at all those components and saying, is this a balanced program for you? And then we build load. So when it comes to specific injuries we've talked a little bit about the achilles the other one that i you know would be remiss to spend a little bit of time on and i know it's been flogged fairly hard is the sort of the gluteal end of the spectrum so particularly for and i don't want to be too blanket statement here but but for female runners who have a high, much higher incidence of gluteal tendinopathy in their in their masters categories than than their male counterparts then it's really important to get the strength up in the gluteals and but we can't just be doing you know, squats, lunges, and clamshells all the time and expect that that's going to solve the problem if they've got an essential mobility issue as well or they've got a complete lack of lumbosacral stability control. And I don't, mean, I don't mean sort of manual therapy instability. I mean the ability to coordinate the lumbopelvic region well. You know, if they've got a squat that's all over the place but they have a strong glute, well, that skill is too low to translate into effective movement. So you've still got to kind of partner the same things up, even if it's a, it's a problem at the hip or the pelvis. You've still got to have the same principles of building strength, working on the mobility, getting the skill up, putting them all together and seeing how it translates into the clinic. Are there any good examples that you can share of some gluteal strengthening exercises or some Achilles strengthening exercises that um, a runner might be missing or that you commonly see a, a runner is missing? Yeah, sure. So um, if I start with the glutes, um, let, me, let me tweak a couple of little things. I, I'm, not, I'm not done with clamshells, but I'm a, little, um, I'm a little tired of how they get used as the sort of the solution for all gluteal problems, um, you know, lay on the side and start opening your hips. Um, when that's a nice introduction to the sort of load that you've got to get into when you're running. So I would prefer to see somebody doing a more upright version of something in their hip abductors or their glute max or their deep hip rotators, whichever you're sort of trying to target. That might be as simple as doing some standing clamshells where they put a band around their knees and they stabilize on one side and then they use the, the free leg in the air opening and closing so that they're challenging the stability of the stance limb. And you can put that in a variety of kind of hip flexion, knee flexion angles so that you simulate various components of the, of the, stance phase um i still love simple things like 
like lunges, um, like a back lunge with a little bit of load, holding it up like a goblet. Um, I like basically going through um, a, a block squat. So if you stand up on a on a, a bench or a block or a set of stairs, sort of two steps is about the right height, and you do a lateral step down where your heel touches towards the ground and you try and maintain a really strong, stable pelvis. Um, then we know that you're coping with the flexion loading that has to occur in the first 50% of the, the stance phase when those gluteals are really working hard. Um, and it's mostly about the eccentric loading that you're going to kind of be focusing on. So not quite as critical as to what they're doing after that point, but if you can really close the gate slowly, then, then you get better elastic recoil. So, so a, side, a side squat off the edge of a block, um, a backward lunge, standing clamshell, those would be a couple of good ones to go with. Um, to get people kind of engaged in their glutes and to not be too, um, to not be so glute centric, meaning that, you know, it's a bit like when I first graduated, we were all obsessed about VMO. Um, and it was all about, oh my God, I can't feel my VMO. I can't activate my VMO. What's going to, what's going to turn my VMO on? And we've sort of done the same thing with, with glute medius, you know, sort of become the, I can't feel my glutes. Well, if you've got a stable pelvis and you're loading your knee with, with reasonable control, your glutes are just fine. You know, they, don't, they don't need to feel like they're on all the time. And so we need to get people out of their heads, literally, get them out of sort of intrinsic cueing and get them into extrinsic cueing. Um, but the strengthening side of it should make that naturally happen. It should be a better expression of the, of the glutes with movement. Um, when it comes to the Achilles, if I can just keep rolling on this for a second. Go for it. Um, if, if you come to the Achilles, I mean, most people will be doing calf raises. They'll be sort of standing on the edge of a step going up and down. And some of you will have kind of gone down the Alfredson route of, of predominantly looking after the eccentric component, which is just one type of contraction. Um, but I think that you've got to remember that the, the Achilles tendon is wickedly powerful and can tolerate phenomenal amounts of, rain, amounts of load. And so if you're only doing it with body weight, you're probably under training that tissue. So you need to build up to a place where you really can take significant amount of load in your hand or in a vest or under a bar or a Smith rack, something like that, where you really take that tissue to fatigue. And, and you'll know whether you're training it hard because you'll be fatigued. If you can keep doing reps and reps and reps and you're up in the sort of 20, 30, 40 rep zone, well, you're just not loading it hard enough to get a, a physiological change. So calf raises are still completely powerful, very valid, and maybe with a little more emphasis on the bent knee position so that we get a little more contribution from the soleus, which, which you know, Seth O'Neill's work has really illuminated for us that, that this thing takes, you know, 60% of, your, of your, your load comes through the soleus. And so you've got to have great strength in the soleus. Um, so bent knee calf raises, that could be a seated calf raise with a, with a dumbbell or a plate resting on your or a bar resting on your thigh, or it could be in a machine. If you haven't got that, and you've only got access to your body weight, then get into a couple of functional positions. So get yourself up against the wall, leaning into the wall, like you're kind of striding up the wall. Um, and then just do lift and lowering of your heel, but keep that knee ever so slightly bent. So you're sort of driving up and down, lifting the heel and lowering the heel, but it only needs a very small range of motion because you don't go through massive ranges of motion at your ankle. Really only go through about 25 or 30 degrees most times. And, and it's really about kind of locking in that power and that small range um, through, particularly through the soleus and a little bit less in the castrum. So those, are, those would be a couple of ideas for, the, for that. Progress the load, um, still do the calf raises, do some seated bent ones, and then do something that I just call a wall runner, where you're sort of driving yourself into the wall, hands on the wall, and you're lifting and lowering your heel in a running fashion. Heaps of good stuff there. Heaps of good takeaways. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the soleus, it's still a part of the calf muscle. But what Matt was describing is usually when the knee is bent, it uh, has a preference for the soleus to work rather than the other calf muscles. And so uh, because your knee is slightly bent when you're running, it's good to try and work the calf muscle and prioritize the soleus to work if the knee is bent, so doing some um, seated calf raises or to do some calf raises with the knee in a bent position um, tends to 
have the soleus work harder than the other muscles. I totally agree when you're talking about the glutes. I'm actually a little bit frustrated at the moment talking to a whole bunch of runners and they think their glutes aren't firing because they've seen um, either other runners or other health professionals that say, oh, you have this injury because your glutes aren't firing. And it's Mm. one of the most common uh, phrases that people like using and it freaks people out. It freaks the runners out and, and they come to me and they're saying, oh, I'm trying to run and I can't feel my glutes when I'm running. So I'm trying to consciously activate my glutes while I'm running and it's just not working. I don't feel them. And I totally agree. It's, it's sending them backwards and it's giving them a lot of worry and it's mm-hmm. unnecessary in my opinion. Yeah. It takes, it takes away a lot of confidence in their body. You know, you should be pretty darn confident that your body is doing some pretty amazing stuff here. And there's, there's really very unlikely that you have a completely absent muscle. yeah you're looking at like neurological deficits there and it's it's extremely uncommon yeah yeah absolutely and when you're talking about the achilles and people can do 20 30 calf raises but they're just not tapping into another component of strength um one thing we can touch base on is if we're talking about strength we are looking at endurance so the low weight doing a lot of reps but we're also wanting to tap into strength which is you know getting are heavier than your body weight and doing lower reps, but then you were also doing power. So it's kind of like if we're going on that stool analogy, um, yeah. like we mentioned before, we're looking at strength, we're looking at endurance, but also power. And a lot of times I can have runners who do 25 single leg calf raises with good form. And then you get them to try and hop on that foot and they've just like mm-hmm. the control, they can't produce that force at that rate required for hopping and that's when you say, okay, you're strong. You've got the endurance there, um, but we need to start slowly implementing some power. Anything you want to touch on with that? Yeah. The, I mean, the hop test is the, is the grand, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the grand illuminator. Like you can, you can have somebody and, and you've taken it through an examination and they might be sort of happily nodding and not really caring particularly much about anything you, you have brought across to them. But when you show them that they cannot hop, they get it. They get the idea of like, guess what? I can't keep my heel off the ground while I'm doing this. I, I get folks to do just a little pogo jump um, where they're just showing me the elastic recoil of that tissue, just bouncing off the ground, just an eighth of an inch, you know, a couple of centimeters off the ground or so. Um, and they're just popping up and down and they, and they happily do it. They can bounce away till they're blue. Um, and then as soon as you, you go to a single leg and you ask them to keep exactly the same high rhythm, they start to decay. Now, I don't literally mean decay, but the cadence drops down. They can't keep that rhythm because they don't have the power to be able to go to it. If you ask them to hop at an even lower rate and to sort of get some vertical, now you're really asking the power system to be, to be turned up and show itself. And that's where they can't do it. And so this is really common in master's athletes. Of They can, they can squat quite well if they've been lifting and they've done some, some work in the gym. And, they, and you know, maybe they're a fairly sort of uh, quad dominant runner, so to speak, that they sit in the chair a little bit when they're running and they like heels. But then you get them to actually get into that Achilles tendon, get up on their midfoot or their forefoot and start bouncing on it singly in a sort of powerful way and they can't. So what do you do? You've got to build the pyramid. And the pyramid is those things that you've already mentioned. Right? You've, got to have, you've got to have endurance. You've got to have good control. So that's you've got to have decent proprioception and skill. But you've got to have good endurance. And then on top of that, you build strength. And strength is bringing the reps down, bringing the load up so that you're fatiguing around about five to eight repetitions. And you have to stop because you can't complete 80% of the range of motion or you've completely lost the rhythm of the movement. And then once you've got strength, then you can build plyometrics and you can build power. So now what you're talking about is you're trying to move heavy load quickly whether that's the body weight or it's the body weight plus load, but you're trying to basically make that thing move faster under load. But now we're talking about things such as box jumps. And initially the box jumps would be up onto a box. So it's just the propulsive power, um, starting from a little semi-squat and jumping up and doing double-legged jump ups and then eventually getting to a place where you do two legs jumping up and landing on one leg and then eventually it's one leg jumping off and landing on the same leg. And then you can obviously progress it by increasing the height. And then you want to look at taking that same power and then seeing if you can translate it into a plyometric, which is essentially a recoil exercise where 
you bounce and you bounce out of it higher than you bounced into it, so to speak. So that might mean jumping off something, small step to start with, and actually getting that sensation of bouncing off the ground and being able to explode up into the air. Um, so all of those things are sort of steady progressions. For most of my master's athletes, really all you've got to get them to is to a place where they can, they can jump up on something from single leg to single leg with good control. And they've normally got enough power to get themselves well out of the pain situation, but also that their performance is going to start opening up. They've had a deficit in it. So they'll already have sort of have drunk the Kool-Aid, as we say here, meaning that they've, they've sort of they've got into the program. They know now that this is going to reap some benefits for them if they stay on top of it. Yeah, and that taps into that building resiliency and having uh, address confidence and feeling like they're, uh, you know, keeping the body guessing and they're adapting to different environments yeah. and different components. And when you're talking about some runners feel quite vulnerable, if you start implementing these sort of exercises, you're going to start building up your confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for the next couple of questions, I might have to, uh, well, I advise that we keep the answers quite short, but um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, a little, I'm a little verbose. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem at all. I think what we've talked about has been so valuable. I've just had to keep you going because I can't really afford to cut anything out because it's all so good. So is there a better way for us to plan a yearly race calendar if we're preparing for something as we're getting older? You know, I, I think about this often and I'm going to give you a simple answer. My first simple answer is I'm a, I'm a good physio and an average coach. You know, I coached rugby, touch rugby, uh, a little bit of high school track and field stuff. But I haven't really coached master's athletes long enough as their sole coach to give good advice about the training through the year. I think the sensible thing is that you want to be smart about the number of races that you'll actually peak for, uh, that it's okay to train through races as long as that race is not massively traumatic meaning that it's not some sort of grand overreach in your distance. Um, and, and that you, ch- you choose your battles wisely during the year. Let, let there be enough variability, like act your age enough that you can let a race go as far as its importance goes. So, so I'm more on sort of the lifestyle side of it and the, uh, and the balancing out of decision-making than I am about you know, a single master's athlete going for peak performance at you know, like a master's Olympics level kind of scenario. I think that person generally has a coach and generally has a pretty good plan of how they're going to go through the micro macro cycles building towards it. I think one of the things that I, that I have implemented, if I just throw it in quickly, is that getting masters runners on, on a slightly different training cycle, get them out of the one week cycle, get them onto a nine day cycle has been really helpful. Uh, it just allows them to sort of balance those little micro cycles better and actually build in a little bit more recovery in a, in a sort of a more, more um, fluid state. And, and that if they're going to peak for some races, peak for two races. Don't try and peak for three or four. Um, just have a couple of races that you peak for. Um, so that would be my major thing. And, the other, and then the last side of that is, is that Tim Gabbett's work has really taught us that consistency in training is so important. So there's no off-season. If we, if we carry the leaky bucket analogy, you can't take too many breaks. You can take micro breaks, but you can't really take months off. So the winter, you don't get to sit on your bum and drink beer. Um, you've, got to, you've got to stay busy. Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot. Masters runners lose a lot quickly. Great point. How about muscle recovery? If we're talking about, I guess, more around the passive acts of treatment like massage, stretching, foam rolling, that kind of stuff, do you have any advice for runners for recovery? Um, so am I allowed, am I allowed to use the word bullshit? Um, yeah, I'm uh, more than happy for you to use that one. Okay. So, so I think we've got to call the bullshit meter on, on the value of foam rolling, um, tools, devices, gadgets that go buzz. Um, there's nothing wrong with the feel good nature of them. There's nothing wrong with the fact that they create a short term change in mobility and that they probably stimulate the tissue in a very vascular and neurological way that can feel good. But they don't break up scar tissue. We're not full of scar tissue. They don't 
have any improvement in the recovery of a tissue. If you've got delayed onset muscle soreness, you're still gonna have delayed onset muscle soreness whether you roll or not. If you have massage after you have a workout, you're still gonna have delayed onset muscle soreness, but your perception in the tissue might be slightly better, meaning that you're comfortable, you tolerate it a little bit better. So am I against it? Not at all. Am I against how important it becomes for a lot of people? Yes. So if I look at where I wanna put most of my time when it comes to recovery, I should spend more time in recovery focusing on getting really good sleep, really good hydration and nutrition. Those are way more important than how much foam rolling I'm doing. So that's my sort of get nasty and say, come on, don't spend so much time foam rolling a tissue and not get the right food into you at the right time or recover appropriately or get a really good night's sleep because so much groovy good stuff happens when you're sleeping. So, yeah, I think you've done a really good job of summing that up and it's probably a hard ask for me to ask you to answer it quickly and then give it your question <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, a couple of things I want to add as well is when you're talking about that feel good nature, yes, it's okay to stretch, um, but we can't fool ourselves into what stretching is actually doing. Like if you stretch and you feel good while you stretch and after you stretch, that's fine, but we can't fool ourselves into thinking that it's aiding recovery and it's uh, helping our or decrease our risk of injury or helping our performance. There's just mm-hmm. no evidence to show for that. And if you are the type of athlete who is constantly feeling stiff or sore and you're like, Oh, where, where's the answer? Is it massage? Is it foam rolling? I'm still stiff. I'm still sore. What's the answer? Then you probably need to reevaluate your running program and make yeah. sure that you're prioritizing a bit more recovery which is rest, sleep, nutrition than anything else. Yeah, yeah, well said. I think that if we, if we think that the majority of running injuries are basically related to overtraining and, and, and overtraining means that you don't have enough capacity to cope with the training that you're doing or you're overreaching. If, yeah. if, we, if we look at tissues that are not recovering well, either we're, we're training too much or we don't have the capacity to cope with that training. So commonly, you know, I mean, you've probably said this to people as well, that they somebody comes in with a very tight hamstring and they keep telling me how tight the hamstring is and how they want to stretch it. I'm going to probably say to them, you know what, it's probably not strong enough to cope with what you're asking it to do. And so it's reacting in a way that you perceive as stiffness and shortening the muscle. And all that is, is it's just the muscle is overworked. So let's get it stronger and longer, you know, rather than saying, let's just passively stretch it. Let's improve your training, get recovered, strengthen in a lengthened position so that we actually gain range of motion in it with control and then you're and then you're over the hump yeah 100 percent. i often say to clients uh they perceive it to be tight because when they stretch it it gets sore and because mm-hmm. it's sore when i stretch it that means it's really tight but it's actually not it's mm-hmm. just the muscle is sore because it's been overworked yeah yeah yeah, yeah well said if we have any other takeaway messages, like I've written down here, the, the benefits of running variability, implementing that, making smarter, wiser decisions as you get older, uh, act your age, as you were saying. We've got the, the stall of strength, mobility, and skill, dealing with this stubborn population that usually don't like to change anything. <laughs> Is there any other takeaway messages that we can leave this interview on? Ooh, I think if there's, I think if there's one that an old therapist can can share, it's that the value of good coaching and a good relationship with the athlete is sometimes more powerful than than what you physically do with them. Um, so I presume that some of your listeners will be physios and some of them will not be physios and will be will be runners um, and runners who are interested in getting better. That. Finding a good coach, finding a good physio or a good healthcare practitioner and really having a good, clear, open, communicative relationship with that person is invaluable because we always do better with a community, always do better with you know, being, being humble and being trying to learn, learn about how we can do this thing better. And, and I think the last thing, and this may sound a little touchy-feely and philosophical, but remember why you run. You, know, you run to be healthy. You run to be healthy and happy. And so you want to kind of surround yourself with knowledge that allows that to happen, you know, that, that really builds on that. So I, I think the coaching comment or the, the keying yourself up with people who know that and get that across to you and kind of instill that into you is, is always going to be healthy for you. So. 
Well Thank said you. and a good way to finish up. Um, Matt, are you active on social media at all? Is there any platforms or any uh, links that people can go to if they want to learn more about you? You know, I'm not particularly active on social media. I've got, I've got three kids and two grandkids. Um, so I'm, I'm busy enough, but I have walshpt.com is my little website that uh, I post some bits and pieces on. I'm Walsh Physio on Instagram. Um, and there's bits and pieces that come out on that. Uh, and I've got some stuff on Medbridge. That's my education work that I do online. So those are probably the way that people, for people to find me. I don't really do anything on Twitter anymore these days. Yeah. Fantastic. Mate, you've done a brilliant job of explaining really, really well, breaking down these concepts for such a difficult and wide ranging topic. And you're doing a, you do a really good job of like covering all these bases. So I want to say thanks for sharing your incredible knowledge and the, this topic itself just affects so many runners and so many of the, the masters runners are frustrated with, recurring injuries and they really need this insight so thanks for coming on sharing your knowledge and taking the time cheers thanks man thanks for listening to another episode of the running smarter podcast i hope you can see the impact this content will have on your future running if you want to continue expanding your knowledge please subscribe to the podcast and keep listening if you want to learn quicker jump into the facebook group titled become a smarter runner if you want tailored education and physio rehab you can personally work with me at breakthroughrunning.physio. Thank you so much once again. And remember, knowledge is power.